0: Parshas Naso introduces us to one of the most fascinating personalities in all of the Torah, and that is the Nazir. A lengthy description of both the process, the implications, as well as the ritual that concludes the Nazirite period is found in Paragvav here in our Parsha. And what's fascinating is that on the one hand we know there are three basic prohibitions that a Nazir accepts upon him or herself – Number one, no consumption of wine or grapes or any great product. Number two, no haircuts. And number three, that the nausea cannot become Tamei Lameis, cannot become contaminated Tamei even for the death of a close relative. There seems to be, however, a very interesting contradiction, or at least tension, in the Pesukim themselves about whether this is in fact a good or ideal halachic category, or perhaps is much less than that, begrudgingly positive or even worse. On the one hand, the pasuk tells us here in Paragvav Vav, pasuk Ches, kol nizro kadoshu l'Hashem. He is very, very holy. The Nazir is clearly given a compliment and a positive perspective. On the other hand, in Pasuk yeral if we read, v'chad v'chad v'chiper alav Asher chata al hanafesh. It is clear that the Kohen has to help the person a tone for becoming a an Nazir. And then we read later, a few psukim, later in Pasu that among the karbonots that the Nazir brings at the end of his period of being a Nazir is a karbonchatas, a sin offering. Obviously, these two psukim indicate something very negative about being a Nazir. So which one is it? Is it just a positive thing or is it a negative thing? And in fact, this tension is perhaps the basis of a well-known machlokas already in the time of the Tanoim that we read about in Mesechas Tainis, between Rabalazir Hakapar, who was more negatively inclined toward the Nazir for unnecessarily depriving himself of wine, or and uses that as a broader approach to anti-asceticism, versus Rabalazar ben Shamua, who actually viewed the Nazir as something holy and a paradigm for a broader, more aesthetic approach to the physical. This basic debate, which is already, as I mentioned in the Tanaim, is in fact elaborated on by the Rishonim and the classical Mepharshim here, uh, as well as in our, par- on our Parsha and in general. First approach, on one extreme, is that of the Rambam. Very famously in Hechos and Perik Gimel, the Rambam says that a person who totally rejects meat and wine, will not marry, will not live in a nice home, or wear nice clothing, this is wrong, this is evil, a person is on the wrong track. You are a sinner if you do that. As we see, says the Rambam, from the Nazir, to be an ascetic, to prohibit yourself, to withdraw from the world, even in areas where the Torah permits it, is in fact considered something that is sinful, you need a Karmachatas, and you need a Kapara. That is to say, not only is the Rambam viewing the Nazir himself or herself as somebody bad, but we use that approach as a paradigm for a general approach to the material world, what the Torah prohibits we should stay away from, but what the Torah permits we are allowed to enjoy and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, on the contrary, to voluntarily withdraw from that is considered something negative. It is worth noting in the spirit of full transparency and intellectual honesty that the Rama himself in Moron Ruchim in Perak Gimel, Perk, excuse me, Chelek Gimel, Perak Memchas, does have a somewhat more positive view towards the Nazir or at the very least, understands why a person would avoid alcohol, but that, I guess, to analyze that piece and to resolve it, I think would be beyond the scope of our Dvar Torah. But certainly, generally speaking, the Rambam's view is considered uh, one to be negative towards the Nazir and an ascetic. And certainly, his words in Helhos Deus are not only famous, but deservedly so, because they are so straightforward and so powerfully and so passionately delivered. On the other extreme, we have the Ramban here in our Parsha and Pasuk Yadalid. Ramban is clear that the Nazir is somebody who is absolutely Kodesh. He is holy. If that's the case, why does he need to bring a karma khatas? Why does the Kohen need to help him achieve Kapara? Says the Ramban very simply, because once a person volunteers, you don't have to volunteer to be a Nazir, but once you volunteer, you've been religiously inspired, you're idealistic, you've achieved this high level of Kedusha, this unbelievable level of sanctity, removing yourself as much as possible from the physical world and the physical pleasures, to go back, to retreat to return to the physical and to the mundane, that is the sin. Says the Ramban, He should have stayed, says the Ramban, in his more ascetic, more elevated holy state forever. The sin isn't becoming a Nazir. The sin is that once a person has become a Nazir, to end that and return to what we consider normal life is actually a sin and a retreat and something that a Nazir who had already been on that higher level needs a Kapara for. So we see two opposite approaches in the Rambam and the Ramban, both in how do they view the Nazir, and both view the Nazir as a paradigm for a larger view of life. The Rambam is a negative view of the Nazir, and therefore a negative view, broadly speaking, of an overly ascetic lifestyle, and the Ramban holds out these to be an ideal. While these are the two most extreme approaches in the Rishonim, viewing the Nazir as a litmus test for a broader approach to asceticism and material pleasure, there are two other views I'd like to share that are slightly different slightly more moderate and nuanced. On the one hand is the Kliyakar, who also generally takes a negative view of the Nazir, but says not because of a view of material pleasures and asceticism, as we've seen until now, but rather specifically, the fact is that since the Nazir will be having these particular prohibitions on him or herself, by definition, that will separate the Nazir from the rest of society. The very fact that he or she is going at it alone, accepting certain things upon him or herself which will prevent them from the person from naturally interacting in everyday life with other people in the neighborhood, in the community, that itself is considered the prohibition. That's the problem. That's what you need kapara for, says the Kliyakar, for becoming muvdol, u'mufrash me'zulaso, u'bona bamal atmo. you're kind of having your own religion and you're separating yourself from the rest of the community. The Or HaKhaym HaKadosh, offers a final approach, a fourth approach, and he says it really depends on your motivation. He says the Torah talks about both nazir, but also nazir la Hashem. A nazir is someone who's doing this for his own or her own personal preference. For whatever reason, you may prefer an ascetic lifestyle. You think that that's an end in and of itself. However, a nazir la Hashem is someone who's doing this purely motivated in order to get closer to Hashem. You understand that the ultimate goal is to be close to Hashem, and therefore, from the beginning, it's not about the nazirus or the asceticism per se, but you hope that it will be a vehicle to bring you closer to Hashem. That, says the Orachaim is a positive thing. Towards the end of Perek Vav, we are introduced to the famous Birkas Kohanim, the special bracha that is said by the Kohanim given to the nation. We know that nowadays in Eretz Yisrael, we say this bracha every single day during the Chazar Rashad, and those who live in the diaspora in Chuzlaretz say it on Yomim Tovim. We read, in Psukim <laughs> Chavdalat through Hashem May Hashem bless you and protect you Yayer Hashem Panav May Hashem cause His countenance to shine towards you and to favor you Yisa Panav Shalom May Hashem raise His countenance towards you and grant you peace. Interestingly, when the Chazan is introducing these brachos as part of his Chazaras shots for the Kohanim themselves bless the people. Part of his Nusuch, part of the text which he says, he refers to this as a bracha m'shuleshes, a threefold tevila. However, a Rebbe, Rabbi Willig, in the introduction to his Sefer, Am Mordechai, on Masech brachos, points out that this seems to be very difficult. After all, there are actually six independent brachos, not three. Yivrecha Hashem, that's one, Yishmerecha is two, is 3, is 4, Yisar is 5, Yisam Shalom is 6. So if there's clearly 6 Brachos, why do we, as part of our davening, refer to this as a Bracha Mishuleshus, a threefold Bracha? Rabbi Willig very beautifully, inspiringly explains that if we understand the Brachos on a deeper level and how they relate to each other and their themes, we will also understand why, in fact, it is correct to refer to them as a threefold bracha, as a bracha مشulashis. In fact, in reality, says Rabbi Willig, there are ultimately just three brachos. Each bracha contains not only something very, very positive, but an inherent risk. And therefore, that bracha also comes with a companion bracha, which is really just intended to neutralize that risk. So for example, let's take them one at a time. Yivrecha Hashem. Hashem should bless you. Rashi quotes from the this is a request that Hashem provide us with monetary success. So explains Rabbi Willig, we know, of course, that money can be a tremendous blessing, but could also easily be a curse. Chazal point out that people are more likely to rebel when they are wealthy, when they have all their, their needs met, and then they can forget about Hashem. They don't think that they need Him anymore. Therefore, we have the second half of that phrase, the companion bracha, Yishmarecha, Hashem should protect you. That is to say, it's a prayer for protection from the damaging side of the effects of money. Hence, it's not really a separate bracha, rather preserving of, and a protection of, the bracha of Yivarechacha. So it's really one bracha. Yivarechacha Hashem, please bless us with monetary success, with material benefit and blessing. Vishbracha, and protect us from any downside. The next one, Yo'er Hashem, Pano'v may Hashem cause countenance to shine on you. This is a reference to Torah, a blessing for the light of Torah. After all, we know it's an allusion to light, and the Gemara Megillah tells us, Ora, Torah." Plus, right in Davening, in, in the bracha of Shalom, we say, Ki or panecha Lasatalano alano tores chayim, in the light of your countenance. So it seems clear that this second phrase is not about material blessing, but rather about spiritual one, for growth in Torah and in spirituality. However, says Rabbi Willick, even this bracha, requires a protection. Because the more Torah we know, the more that is expected of us, and the more damaging it would be if, chas we did something that would be ter- very terrible. Someone who's very learned and acts immorally or does something wrong actually has the potential to create great chil Hashem to the extent that they would not be able to create if they simply didn't learn that much, if they didn't know that much, if they weren't considered a religious role model. And therefore, we say, after we've already asked for Hashem's blessing of spirituality, V'yichunecha, which Rashi says, V'yitain l'chachein, you should be able to find chain favor, in people's eyes. Rabbi Willig says this means in other people's eyes. You should live, we ask Hashem, or or the Kohen gives us a blessing, after He's already blessed us with Torah and great spiritual success, we should live a life of morality, of honesty, of good ethics, so that we find favor in the eyes of others, and that, that way we create a Kiddush Hashem and don't, Chas Vashalom create a potentially disastrous Chil So here also, it's not two different brachos, but in fact, one bracha and a companion bracha for protection from any downside. So these are two sets of two. So far we've had a bracha for material blessing and a bracha for spiritual blessing. Now we have the final couplet, the final phrase, Yisa Hashem Pana Hashem raise His countenance to you. Reulig explains that we now we ask Hashem to provide both the brachas for spirituality and material blessing, Hashem should provide both of these blessings to us together in combination, material and spiritual wealth. What a blessing to have both Torah u Gedula However, Rabbi Willig notes, even this incredible bracha of having spiritual and material can have a downside. After all, at times when person a person who has both material and spiritual blessing and bounty can feel a sense of competing values. Am I more a materialistic person? Am I more a spiritual person? Should I spend more time on my business or my money? More time on my spiritual pursuits? The very fact that one has a blessing and an abundance of both itself can lead to tension, an inner turmoil, an inner conflict. And therefore we close the final bracha with this final and lasting hope of the same Lacha Shalom we pray and we ask in the, the Kohanim give us a blessing that we should be able to have a sense of inner peace and tranquility. We should be blessed not only with spirituality but also material blessing and those should not be in conflict with each other but we should learn to live at, in a sense of harmony, inner peace and tranquility. This beautiful explanation of Rabbi Willig explains how all six of the brachos in fact are really three sets of two. It also comes out, according to this, that the third bracha is really not an independent bracha but rather the ultimate blessing that a person should be able to enjoy the previous two brachos in healthy harmony. Would that it should be true for all of us. Amen. Parsha's Nasdo is the longest Parsha in the entire Torah, and while there are many beautiful and fascinating sections to this Parsha which contribute to its length, uh, the single biggest contributor to it being such a long parsha is the extensive and detailed description that the Torah gives here in Parsha's Noso of the Naseim, the princes of all of the various tribes, bringing gifts. And the Torah is incredibly detailed, outlining every single gift that each of the princes of the tribe has brought at the dedication of the Mishkan. What is fascinating about this um, is or frustrating, depending on your perspective, is that each of the Shvatim gave the exact same gift. And the Torah, despite the fact that they all gave the exact same gift, doesn't just say, all 12 Sh- nasim, all the princes gave this, and then lists it. It actually lists it 12 separate times, repeatedly, over and over and over again, for each of the Nesim, for each of the Shvatim. And the question, of course, is why it would do that, and why, frankly, did the Nasim all give the same gift? So the Medrash here, in Medrash Rabah, in Parsh Gimel, in Simintazayan explains in incredible detail, but beautiful and profound insight that even though each of the princes gave the exact same gifts, but in fact each gift symbolized something different. Each tribe, as reflected by their prince, has a different character, a different personality, a different destiny, a different mission. And therefore, the gifts that the Nasim gave while on the outside to outer, you know, the superficial appearance and look seem to be the exact same, but in fact, each gift symbolizes something different because each of the tribes have a different and unique mission. So even though the Medrash goes through every one of the Shvatim, let's focus our attention, if we can, just on two fascinating examples of this phenomenon uh, and two Shvatim that typically, and in this case, according to the Medrash, go together. And that is Yisachar and Zavulin, which are the second and the third Shvatim that in fact are listed here for their princes giving the gifts. So right away, says the Medrash here, regarding Yisachar, that when they we are told that they brought a ka'aras kasef achas, a silver bowl, this is based on the tradition which the Medrash outlines in great detail, that Yisachar is the tribe that was charged most primarily with the study of Torah, producing great Torah scholars based on incredible dedication, diligence, and they were the leaders of Torah for all of the tribes. So says the Medrash, in light of that, Torah is sometimes referred to as lechem, as bread, and therefore this silver bowl, when the prince of the tribe of Yisachar gave it, symbolizes in fact a silver bread basket, symbolizing the bread, the Torah, that the Shevet of Yisachar holds up. The Medrash actually very beautifully explains that when Yaakov Avinu, at the end of Sefer bracious on his deathbed, gave Brachos to all the actual Shvatim, his sons, the among the things that is said to Yisachar in that bracha, lisbol, he will bend his shoulder to bear the burden. What burden are we talking about? Says the Madrashir, it's a tremendous burden. What a responsibility to carry the Torah on behalf of the entire Jewish people. The passage there and Bayechi also says, lamas oveid, they become an indentured servant. Here our mission again says, <clears throat> because they were the ultimate responsibility. It's true that every shevet had their own leaders and Torah scholars, but anytime there was a question, anytime there was some kind of mistake or correction that needed to be made, Says the Medrash, everyone came to Yisachar. So, what an incredible responsibility, but also a burden. The Medrash continues and says that one of the other things that's mentioned here is that the princes gave a Mizra'k Echad Kesaf, a silver basin. And the Medrash explains that this is referring to something that was similar to or symbolic of symbolizing a wine goblet, and that's because Torah is sometimes referred to as wine. Moreover, the Torah tells us here that its value or its weight was Shivim Shekel b'Shekel Kodesh, that of seventy silver coins of 70 shkalim. Why? So says the Medrash here very creatively, because as we just said, as a wine goblet. The word wine, yayin, yud yud nun, is in the numerical equivalent, the Gematria is 70, 10, 10, and 50. Yayin, yud yud nun. Why is that important, says the Medrash? It reflects the very famous idea of shivim ponim le Torah, the idea that Torah is multifaceted and multi-layered, and there can be many, many different explanations to the same pasuk. There can be different perspectives on how to understand Torah... Halacha, etc. In fact, 70 different dimensions is the famous phrase. Shivim la Torah. On the other hand, the Medrash does point out, it stresses it's Karas achas, one. Why one? Because there's a certain unifying principle to Torah. Knegar Torah Achas. That's to a certain unity to the Torah, Mikra and Mishnah, Tarshabhsav, Tarshabah. It's all one single Torah one God gave it at one time simultaneously to Moshe, and that is all, frankly, very, very significant. Uh, the Medrash continues even describing the Kafachas, the ladle, symbolizing the luchos, Asarazahav, referring to the Sarasadibros, and really in great and beautiful and inspiring detail, explaining every aspect of this, and how it relates to Torah. The very next prince who brought, the third prince to bring is, the Prince of the tribe of Zvulun, Biyom Ashlishi Nasi Levnei Zvulun Eliav Ben Chelon says the Medrash. Why did Zvulun merit to be the third tri- tribe, the third prince to go? Why does he go right after Yisachar? Because Zvulun loved Torah, and as a result, he received Yadav lechfazer, and Yisachar, because he loved Yitzarech, shevet Yisachar, the Parnasah, lo Yivatel mil Asot petora very famous tradition, which our Medrash here is elaborating on and is a primary source for, that there was a relationship between Yisachar and Zvulun. We said Yisachar were the Torah learners, the rabbis. Zvulun had an arrangement with Yisachar that Zvulun were the businessmen. Hashem blessed them with great wealth and success, and they used that wealth and success to support the Torah and to support their brother and their fellow shevet of Yisachar, so that way Yisachar could dedicate themselves fully to Torah, and Zvulun would be the ones who would sponsor it. In essence, basically, the first arrangement of a kind of a kolel. Therefore, says the Medrash, le Torah Yisachar. That was an incredible zuchus for zvulin. they became a partner of Yisachar. And the Medrash continues that the bowl represents similarly this relationship, it relates to the business, different aspects relate to the high seas, because they were merchant marines, the earth that they traveled, all, every detail in this, the karakesef, the the, the 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 bowl, all this stuff the Medr says explains based on the business that they did and how they used that money and that success to support Yisachar. This phenomenon exists for all the Shvatim, but here we just saw two examples. While the majority of Paragvav discusses with great detail the laws of the Nazir, the last handful of Sukim. Introduce us to the Birkas Kohanim, the special bracha that the Kohanim give the Jewish people, we you know even to this very day, in Eretz Yisrael every day, and the Minigan Chutzlaretz is to just do so over the Amim Tovim. The Emes, in a very beautiful, inspiring, and profound piece, wonders what is the connection between these two seemingly disparate, uh, sections in the Torah. In other words, if they're juxtaposed, if they're, so to speak, sandwiched into a single chapter, which is predominantly about the Nazir, could easily have ended the chapter after Pasuk HaFalif and then started a new parak. But instead, no, we add in another six psukim to tell us about Bikrish Kohanim. This juxtaposition, this association between the two seems to be implied, and yet it defies any obvious explanation. What connection could there be between the laws of the Nazir and the idea of the Kohanim giving a blessing to the people? It says the Sfas Emes, something so powerful and something so insightful. Nazir and Kohanim share something in common, in that they are both somewhat separated from the rest of the nation. On the one hand, the Kohanim were chosen by Hashem, and the Nazir chooses him or herself. But, despite that difference, fundamentally there is a lot in common. Kohanim are in the base of Migdash, which separates them from the people, but most importantly because they cannot become Tame, that not only impacts them in terms of when, God forbid, tragedy strikes, but just in general, they have to be much more careful, they can't go places other people go, they can't walk on the same road, or go into the same building, or the same room as other people, because they have different halachos regards to the rules of Tumah. Similarly, a Nazir also cannot become Tamei. Not only that, because he can't cut his hair, he looks different, he can't necessarily eat and drink with other people, because of the prohibition for him to drink wine or eat grape products. Says the Svasemes, when you think about the Kohen and the fact that he is elevated spiritual leader and in certain ways separated from the people, one might think, and the Kohanim might have thought mistakenly, that the separation is both a cause and effect, but a desired cause and effect and result of their kedusha To be a Tzadik, to be a priest, means to be separated from the people. It says the this is a mistake. HaKohanim Mi bnei Yisrael Yuchadim Yes, it's true that they were appointed to be separate, to be special, to work in the base of Mekdash. Nevertheless, What we see from the Birkas Kohanim, says Esfah Semes, is that the reason that the Kohanim, to the extent that they were, were separated, is so that they would be able to then give back to and connect with the Tzibur. They were separated from the Klal for the sake of the Klal, not because being apart is desirous but the way that they can give most to the Klal is to some extent to be separated. The idea must be internalized by the Nazir as well, says the Tzfasemes. Afal Pikein, despite the fact that the Nazir is separating himself with his vow, We have to realize that you're all doing it, the Nazir is doing it, for the benefit of the Tzibor. Uleida, and the Nazir must know, What a clever play on words that the Svasemis uses here. He is leaving the Klal for the benefit of the Klal. It's temporary, it's not a lifetime like a Kohen, and it's by his own choice. But he has to realize that he's doing it by his own choice and for whatever length of time, not just because it's better for him, for the Nazir, but because ultimately it's La Klal Kulo. It's in fact better for everyone. The Nazir as well has to realize his Mila will only be if he uses his Newfound Holiness and clearly the Svasemes sees something very good in the Nazir, but he only, only if he uses that newfound holiness and new level that he achieved to give and contribute to the Klal. And this is somewhat counterintuitive and definitely not the way people typically view a tzaddik or enhanced spirituality. But this is in fact exactly what we are supposed to learn and the Nazir is supposed to learn from the Kohen. That says the Svasemes is the juxtaposition between them. The Swasemas quote the pasuk in Vayikra, in Parshah Shmini, in Perek as Yadov of Bez, And Rashi there says, and Chazal elaborate, this is the Birkas Kohanim, the first time, it's in the Zchus of Aaron on his special day. This was the day, Yom HaShmini, this is the day where he, his family, but especially he, are elevated to a position of great prominence and leadership and prestige. He is now the one, he is the Kohen Gadol he is the one doing the service in the Mishkan, and Dafka on that day was the first thing we hear about him virtually, that he lifts up his hands to bless the people. It is in fact, says these Isfasemes, this is the essence of perkas Kohanim. By lifting his hands to the people comes from his great love for them. Even though this was his day where he and his family are elevated above the rest of the nation in certain ways, they don't sever ties or distance themselves, but on the contrary, they deepen the connection to the nation with an acknowledgement that his koach ultimately comes from the nation. We can add, although this is not explicitly in the Sefer but it's certainly consistent with what he's saying, that that's why to this very day, when Kohanim make a bracha, before they say the actual Berkash Kohanim, they say a bracha, which of course ends with the words, the vareichas amo Yisrael, bi'ahava, because the relationship between the Kohen and the rest of the nation is not one of separateness or elitism or lording over, but rather one of love and connection. Yes, the Kohanim have a certain special role. Yes, they are separated in some ways, but it's not for their own sake and it's not to be separate, but rather to use that separateness and use that prestige in order to better the situation spiritually and otherwise of the entire nation. What a fascinating, beautiful idea. And says the Svasamis, this is the lesson that the Nazir must inculcate. For whatever reason, the Nazir is motivated to take this vow, to have certain different halachos, to be different, at least for a temporary period, but has to realize it's never the goal. The goal is ultimately and always to be connected to the people and to give back. Externally, yes, the Kohen is separated, says the Svasemis. But nevertheless, the goal of that separation is external, but to help him focus on the more inner connection that he has with every Jew. And that is the lesson that the Nazir is supposed to take from this as well. And of course, a profound insight for all of us. Each in our own way, we strive for kedusha. And there may very well be times, in fact, there may very well be times where we have to do things a little differently if that's what we feel we need. But it can never be for the sake of being different than other people, thinking that we're better than them. On the contrary, anything we need to grow ourselves should be turned back and channeled to help the community. This week's partial we are introduced to the mitzvah of Birkas Kohanim, the blessings that the Kohanim would give the people. In the Rambam and his Sefer Mitzvos, Mitzvah Assei Chavav, as well as in his Koteris Tehichos makes clear that these brachos were to take place every single day. The Kohanim are supposed to bless the people every day. Moreover, the Sefer Achinoch and Mitzvah Shin Ayin Ches says not only does it apply every day, it applies in all places. It's not an Eretz Yisrael or a Beis HaMikdash mitzvah. In fact, it applies to all Jews wherever they are. Kohanim should bless them on a daily basis. This is brought down by the Mishnah Brewer as well, quite clearly. And unsurprisingly, given that all the Rishonim say so, in Shulchan Simen Kuf, Chav If that's the case, it is quite surprising, and more than surprising, it is disturbing, that the Ramah mentions in Simen Kuf, Chav that there is a minhag, Chutz not to do Birkas Kohanim on a daily basis, not even to do it on a weekly basis on Shabbos. Rather, Birkas Kohanim has been relegated to something that we only do on the Yom Tovim, on the Shalosh Ragolim. And in fact, as we know, that has been for many, many years, the minog of Ashkenazic communities outside of the land of Israel. I don't know if we have real definitive historical evidence of how early this practice started, but at least some halachic sources trace back this practice, perhaps as early as the 1100s. So it's been a long, long time, many, many hundreds of years, almost a thousand years, that the Ashkenazic communities outside of Israel have not been duching on a daily basis, but the fact that it's an old practice doesn't mean in any way that we understand why. Where would it come from? It seems to be against the halacha. The Rishonim, the Shachanarach, the Shabur. everyone seems to be very clear that there's a Minog to do this every single day. Now it is worth noting that not only in Eretz Yisrael have they kept this practice correctly, but Sephardic lands, even outside of the land of Israel have also kept this practice pretty consistently. The Beis Yosef attests in his day that Sephardic communities, particularly the big Jewish community in Mitzrayim, in Egypt in his day, were still dochning on a daily basis. The Paasa HaShocha, a student of the Vilna Gaon, uh, testifies to this uh, as well. And he points out that at the great urging of their Rebbe, the Vilna Gaon, when he and about 500 or so other of the Talmudi Hagra made Aliyah in the early 1800s, they reinstituted the daily practice of Duchening in Eretz Yisrael, so you now have Ashkenazim and Sephardim in Eretz Yisrael, Duchening every day, and that of course is the practice till our very day. And we have Svartim outside of Israel, Duchening. The one exception to the rule seems to be Ashkenazim outside of Israel. The prevalent Ashkenazi practice outside of Israel is not to Duchen, not to Dukhas Kohanim on a daily basis, and there doesn't seem to be any good reason for it. In fact, the Vilna, the Magen Avram, excuse me, a great Ashkenazi posek from, from Poland, refers to this as a minhag garua. But a minug, evidently it is. So where did it come from? Many explanations are given. Let's focus on the big three, the primary three theories. The Beis Yosef himself suggests that this is the uh, result of a different custom. And that is that in medieval Ashkenaz, they used to go to mikveh before Brikas Kohanim. Out of a sense of the holiness and sanctity of the Brikas Kohanim, the kohanim themselves would go to mikvah to prepare themselves every day. However, he says over time, this fell out of practice, it became too difficult, perhaps because of the cold or other reasons, they couldn't go to the mikvah every day, and therefore they also stopped duchning on a daily basis. But this really, as the Beis Yosef himself seems to as it writes, seems to be very, very difficult to maintain. After all, there is no source, there is no obligation to go to the mikvah daily. It may be a nice idea... to to go to mikvah before Pekhosh Kohanim, but it's not necessary, there's no source, it's not an obligation, so it's a nice hiddur if you can do it, it's a nice chumrah if you can do it, but it makes no sense and it would be totally illegitimate to say, well, since I can't do the bonus, since I can't do the chumrah, therefore I'm going to throw out the actual mitzvah, the actual obligation. This is a classic chumrah, shemei vilidei kula, it's nice to have a chumrah, but not if it's going to detract from the actual mitzvah, so this seems to be very, very difficult to maintain. The Ramah himself, as we mentioned, he's the one who first tells us about the practice of Ashkenazim outside of Israel, not dochering. He has a completely different theory. He says that the nature of Berkash Kohanim is such that when the Kohanim are giving the bracha, they have to do it with genuine happiness, with true simcha in their hearts, with a menucha anefesh, with a peace of mind, with love of their fellow Jew, as we say in the pre-bracha. And he says, unfortunately, throughout the week and during the year, the Jewish people are way down. They're distracted by their tremendous Parnassah concerns. The grinding poverty that they're suffering under simply does not allow them to have the happiness and the peace of mind to give the brachos with a full heart, and therefore they stopped giving the brachos on a daily basis. But this also seems to be very, very uh, iffy as a suggestion, although it is a fascinating idea, but still not really convincing. First of all, there's no source that this is genuinely a halachic requirement to give the brachos with a menuchas anefesh, with happiness. Number two is, how come in the Sephardic lands it was okay? And perhaps best uh, the best question is, what about Eretz Yisrael? We know the grinding poverty of the Jewish community in Israel over the centuries was horrible. It certainly wasn't a better financial situation than people living in uh, Poland or Russia or Germany and, and other such communities. How could it be that they in Israel were still dochning every day? They somehow could have the right frame of mind, in peace of mind, but the Jews living in Khuslaritz the Ashkenazim then couldn't, and Sephardim could. It, it's a very interesting theory, but there seems to be something really lacking, uh, or not sufficiently explained by this very interesting idea of the Ramah. And third and lastly, the Beis of or Efraim Zalm Margolius in the earlier part of the 19th century, uh, suggests that the issue is that nowadays we don't have any 100% real, bona fide, certified, definitive kohanim. We have a presumption that people are Kohanim, it's known in halacha as a Kohen Chazaka, Kohanim Chazaka. But in earlier centuries, go back to the time of the Beit HaMikdash, every family would have a Ksav Yuchsen they'd have a detailed genealogical chart tracing their family from generation to generation. And Kohanim had detailed genealogy which and tree, in, in, in genealogical trees, family trees, which traced their family all the way back to Aaron HaKohen. So they knew for sure they were a Kohen. Nowadays, almost no family has that anymore. So, if your father and your grandfather and great-grandfather said you're a Kohen, we assume, and in fact we do assume, that you're a Kohen. But that's just a chazakah, it's not 100%. And in fact, there's a halacha that a non-Kohen is prohibited from doing the Berkhas Kohanim. It's an aveira, it's a sin for a non-Kohen to do the Berkhas Kohanim. Therefore, says the Beis Ephraim, we can't have a Kohen who's only a Presumed kohen give these brit kohanim on a daily basis because it could be that they're in fact not a kohen and then they were doing an avera. Better to be sheva al tasa Better not to do anything. I but we do do brit kohanim on yomem tovim and they're the, they're still the same non certain non-definitive kohanim on yomtiv, so how come all of a sudden we're duchning on yomtiv? He says, well, we have to do it a little bit so we don't completely forget about berkas kohanim. That's a third explanation, and I think the common thread of all three of these fascinating ideas is that the question seems to be better than the answer, and it really does remain a mysterious minhag. One of the highlights of this week's Parsha is our introduction to the concept of a nazir, the fact that a man or a woman has the ability to take a specialized vow which would prevent them from doing a number of things such as having wine or any wine or grape products, even becoming tamay, even to their own relatives, and completely prohibited from cutting their hair, all of these for a certain period of time. Very well-known question which actually is debated in Chazal whether the Nazir is an ideal or something less than that. We've spoken about that in the past, but here I'd like to focus on the fact that there are actually a number of contradictions, not just a machloket between two different sources, but there are individual sources which seem to contradict itself, themselves, on this fundamental question. Most importantly, the Torah text itself, on the one hand, calls this person a nazir, which, as Eben Ezra explains, Nazir is from the lashon of a crown clearly indicating this is a good thing. And yet, the Torah itself tells us, towards the end of the section, chata al hanfesh, hanfesh, that this person, when they finish their uh, period of being an azir, has to bring a karbon, and it's a sin offering, because they need atonement. So, which one is it? Is it a crown, something to be proud of? Or is it something that needs atonement? Perhaps even more striking is that the Rambam seems to contradict himself. I say striking because the Rambam in Hilchos Deus in the beginning of Gimel, is very famous for his presentation of the fact that going to the extremes and completely becoming an aesthetic uh, and aesthetic and <coughs> ignoring, trying to run away from this world is a very, very bad thing. That's a well-known position of the Rambam, as he writes there that Hamaharlach Bderhzu, someone who tries to go to these extremes, Nikrachote. And the Chachamim are not fans of this. Gamzed derech ra, va'asur The Rambam is very well known and seems to be unequivocal in his condemnation. On the other hand, less well known, is that the Rambam himself in the Moron in the third section in Perik Ches, chapter 48, there the Rambam has a much more nuanced view and actually seems to be positively inclined, emphasizing that the Nazir is in fact called a kadosh, someone who avoids wine specifically, that dimension of being a nazir the Rambam harps on in this particular passage, does not so much the purity of the dead, or the haircut, but avoiding the wine, that's something that makes a person kadosh, says the Rambam, to the fact, and then he eventually adds, that because of that, he is elevated to such a level of kedusha, that he's on the same level as a Kohen Gadol, in that just like a Kohen Gadol can't even become tame, become impure, file himself even for his own relative's funeral. So to Anazir, says the Rambam, he achieves such a high spiritual level, he's on the lofty level of the Kohen Goro because of his asceticism and his avoidance of wine. So which one is it? Is it a sin? Is it a crown? Is the Rambam against, or is he for? In the contemporary Sefer, which is a collection of the uh, Droshos, given by Rav Eliyahu Schlesinger, who is a very prominent contemporary Talmud Chacham, the chief rabbi of Gilo, and a member of Rabbanu Tarashit. So he suggests that, in fact, yes, it's clear there are a number of sources, and we've only touched them partially, that indicate that the Nazir, and more broadly asceticism, or precious, is a legitimate derech in Avodos Hashem. It is a legitimate way to serve Hashem, and to approach Hashem, and yes, a person can accomplish some great things that way. But, he says, the balance on total, imbalance balance of the sources clearly indicates that this is not the preferred approach. It's a derech, but not the ideal derech. Moreover, it says Schlesinger, why you sometimes might think at first glance that someone who is depriving himself from all of the pleasures of the world is sacrificing, it's so hard. But he says, in truth, when it comes to avodah Hashem, That's the easier approach. The easier, Derech, is just to avoid temptation. But the more preferred approach, the more preferred, Derech, he says, is not to avoid things and hide from this world, but to confront the world and utilize the various aspects of this world for spiritual goals. Not easy, to be sure. But this, says Urshel is avodat ha'adam. This is what we're here to do. This is our ultimate purpose in the world. Food, we should be eating so that we're healthy and strong, and we can serve Hashem. Material blessing, material success, not for its own sake, but so that we should be able to have the time and the menuchas San nefesh to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu. If a person is always worried where his next meal is going to come from, when the next paycheck will come, they don't necessarily have the time and energy or the mental headspace to focus on lofty and sublime and spiritual goals. A certain measure, a certain degree of material comfort and security is necessary, not for its own sake, but to allow one to then focus on and delve into the more important things in life. The Ramban himself, when describing the sin of the Nazir, the Ramban thinks that the Nazir is sinning because he goes back. The Ramban is one of the people who think that the Nazir is great. But even the Ramban points out that when the Nazir ends his period of being a Nazir, he's choser hu l'tavar ha'olam. And the way Schlesinger understands that, he's basically back to where he started. That's why it's a bitty evid, because the real goal is not to, so to speak, take a break, but to progress. Maybe it's more slowly, but to progress using those ta'avot, those desires and material benefits, but for noble goals. In the Birkas Kohanim, which is in the same parsha, the Birkas of the Kohanim, so on the one hand, the brachos are almost all physical bounty. As Rashi says, Yevarech that a Baruch should bless your material property. But at the end of the brachos, we say, "Vesamu Eshmi al Yisrael That is to say, if you combine this, the spiritual, the, excuse me, the material bounty, with the Samu Eshmi, with the spiritual, then in fact, there's nothing wrong with the physical, and in fact it is elevated and pure. That's why the Gemara says when it comes to the holiday of Shavuos, everyone agrees, lachem. there must be some physical celebration with food and drink. Maybe, maybe in the other holidays you don't need it. But Dafkan and Shavuos, the day of Matan Torah, we specifically need it to show that Torah is meant to be lived in the quote-unquote real world. And that's what the Kotzker famously taught on the Posag in Shmos, of Kodesh It says the Kotzker, Hashem has enough angels, He doesn't need more of those in heaven. But Anshe Kodesh, People, human beings who are holy, living in this world, that is the ultimate ideal.